Welcome to the Dream Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Here we go. Song of Songs 1. I, I did not plan on... So here's my whole message that I did plan. And uh, many, many, many pages um, and uh, on Genesis 21. And uh, about Thursday, I realized all of that was just for me. So... He uh, sent me back to Song of Songs, and here's where we're going to start. Most of today is going to be an intro, so I, I, I don't really say this a lot, but uh, if you miss probably the next 20 weeks, um, I, I'm partially serious, um, you, you're just, you're just going to miss, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time going back and reviewing, so I'm just going to expect everybody's going to be here. So um, let, me, let me give you a backdrop of... Song of Songs, just a just a long intro. And I think I'm only going to read four verses today total, so um, you'll see why in a second. Uh, this this book does not get taught in the church today, ever. How, in fact, how many of y'all before you either came here or whatever? How many of y'all have legitimately heard teaching on the Song of Songs before? <laughs> okay, awesome, perfect. So this book does doesn't uh, doesn't get taught. I've talked about the Enlightenment period before. Uh, in, in the 18th century, there was this, this thing called the Enlightenment period or the Age of Reason. And uh, it's, it was the French Revolution was included in this. I won't go into a ton of detail about history. But anyway, um, during this period, there was a widespread global, especially in America, um, idea that Christianity was just a good moral code. And so, literally, what we did is we, and you've heard me teach this before, but just to review to talk about songs, we basically shove God into outer space, into a distant heaven far away, and then we took the Bible and broke it down into all the good, grace, hope, love, joy, all that stuff, broke that down, and that's what we gave everybody else in Christianity. And so, we shoved God away. And so, you even had in this period... Uh, Thomas Jefferson did a what's called a Jeff, the Jefferson Bible, which was considered a translation. And uh, literally what he did is he went into the Bible and took out all angelic encounters, all divine, like healing, God speaking to his people, took all that out, took out the resurrection of Jesus, and literally left grace, hope, love, joy, all that stuff, all the good teachings, and released the Jefferson Bible. And you, so you can kind of get an idea of what happened in this period. Um, this is the period... And I'm not going to hit on this at all today, but this is, this is the period the rapture came from. Um, this is the period that Song of Songs started being seen as what we see it as today. Before the 18th century, Song of Songs was the most holy book in the church. After the 18th century, when we shove God into a distant heaven, Song of Songs became a book about marriage. And if you attach it to your marriage, it'll work. But that's not what Song of Songs is. And so let me give you a uh, very detailed intro into this book because the rest of it won't make sense unless you get this. So here we go. If you brought notes, something to write with, this is, this is your moment. Okay. Um, Song of Songs was written by King Solomon. Okay. King Solomon was David's son. Um, he wrote, he was the wisest man on earth. God gave him the spirit of wisdom. God said, you can have whatever you want. Just ask me. And he says, I'm a kid. I don't know what I'm doing. So give me wisdom to lead your people. And God says, great, I'll give you wisdom and I'll give you everything else you didn't ask for. The wisest man on earth. Okay. Uh, Solomon, King Solomon wrote 3000 Proverbs and 1005 songs. This was his greatest. Not just his greatest, the greatest ever written, okay? There are 66 books of the Bible total. Um, some historians have considered Song of Songs to be the pinnacle of all of Scripture. In this view, the five books of the Torah, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses, um, center around Song of Songs, and the other 60 books surround and support the central truth that God loves us with a passionate, relentless love. In fact, in the original Bible, Song of Songs was placed right after Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and then Song of Songs. 
So in the, in the original Bible, it wasn't after Proverbs. It's put in your Bible after Pro- Proverbs because Solomon wrote Proverbs, Song of Songs, and then you go into Ecclesiastes and all this. So um, praise the Lord. He's calling. Why do we do that? Every time, growing up in church, a phone ring, Jesus is calling. Um, and there, I think there's even a book about Okay. Um, that was our way. That was our way. Okay. So, so, all right, bring it back. So, historically, Song of Songs was considered the pinnacle of all Scripture. Okay. That means the five books of the Torah um, centered around Song of Songs, and the other 60 books surrounded and supported it. The number 60 means to uphold and support. The number five means grace, and the number one, Song of Songs, means life union with Jesus. I'd write that down. The early church did not have a compiled New Testament for a few hundred years. So we, don't, we don't ever think about this because we have the New Testament. The early church started without the New Testament. They, did not, they didn't have a New Testament. So for the first few hundred years, they couldn't flip open a, a book to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans. But what they did have was the Old Testament, and specifically Song of Songs was seen as the book that the early church clung onto, clinged, clung, clinged onto more than all of them. Okay? Because you have this old law, but then you have this book right smack in the middle of what they had that all it described was this passionate love affair of Jesus and his people. Okay? Y'all with me so far? Okay. <clears throat> the oldest known manuscripts from the time of the apostles, the first hundred years of the church, um, all, a hundred percent of them, describe Song of Songs as divine allegory or as one of the most powerful parables in the Bible. Okay? So the oldest known manuscripts all the way back to the first apostles, all of them describe Song of Songs as this is Jesus and his bride. Okay? A divine parable. Let me put it this way. Uh, the, the story of the prodigal son. Does everybody know the story of the prodigal son? Right? How many of you know that that didn't actually happen? So, some of y'all are like, yeah, what? Right? That the prodigal son, there was no actual prodigal. I mean, I guess a lot of people are prodigal sons. But the story that Jesus taught, that, that wasn't something like he was recounting history. That was a parable. He was telling a story. And the reason that Jesus spoke like this is because he gave the story of the prodigal son, and the way Jesus spoke was just like Scripture. In fact, Jesus, when you hear the, the phrase, the Word of God, primarily you should think of Jesus. The Bible upholds and supports the Word of God, but Jesus was the Word made flesh. Not a word, not one of the words, the Word made flesh. The Bible is simply the upholding and revelation of the one who is the Word of God, Jesus. If you have a pizza, you have the entire pizza, but then you have like pepperonis and cheese and marinese and all that stuff. But the whole pizza is the pizza, okay? Without the toppings, you can still have a pizza. It ain't going to taste very good, but you can have you can't have a pizza if you just got a bunch of toppings laying around, right? So what the Bible is, is all the detailed pieces of the whole of the word Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, so um, I thought I just heard somebody say no. If you did, that's okay. Um, you were probably joking, I would hope. So the, pro- the prodigal son, so Jesus, Jesus spoke this story, this grand story, the prodigal son. But the reason that he spoke it like this, and a lot of what he taught was like this, is because depending on where you were in life, you could take it and relate it to wherever you were. So, for example, if you were somebody that had run from God and you had traded away everything that God had given you, then you hear the story of the prodigal son and relate to the son. If you're a priest and you're hearing the story of the prodigal son, all of a sudden you start having hope for all the people that left the church because the son was brought back to the dad. If you're somebody who's jealous 
of people who had ran, run from God, and now God seems to be blessing them over and over and over, and it seems like you're not getting anything from God, and you start thinking, man, I know their past. How are they getting that from God, and I'm not getting anything from God? You can hear the story of the prodigal son and relate to the brother. So he speaks one parable, and depending on where you are in life, you can take that and run with whatever revelation. And you can take that deeper in Revelation 2, because one day the son becomes the dad. So do you see how that works? And so Jesus taught in parables because it was a lot more effective for him to give a seed of revelation and let it grow as it needed than to just give out this point blank, straight up revelation and everybody take it the same no matter where you are in life. So Song of Songs was given to us as a divine parable so that we could see the love of the Father the love of the bridegroom and the love of the bride, us, while also knowing our destiny and purpose no matter what stage of life we are in. Because this book starts with her and him seeking each other out and it ends in they are married and one. So no matter where you are, maybe you're not even saved today. Song of Songs 1 is right where you are. Maybe you are deep in love with this thriving, passionate relationship with Jesus. Song of Songs 7 and 8 is right where you are. Do you see how that works? So um, many of the early church fathers <coughs> did commentaries on the book of Song of Songs. Okay? To do a commentary on a book takes time. And most of the early church fathers made sure if they were doing commentaries, they did it on this book. Okay? Uh, Jesus taught in parables or allegories so that we could clearly see the divine, infinite revelations of him, his kingdom, and ourselves. Uh, there was a rabbi, Rabbi Akiva ben Joseph, in 137 A.D., 137 A.D., and he taught that when Solomon stood up and prophesied at the dedication of the temple— when the glory filled the temple, all the priests fell on their face, that Solomon stood up in the presence of the Lord and prophesied this book. So it was, it was taught in early Jewish history that when Solomon built the temple and the presence of the Lord filled the temple, it was so thick and heavy with glory that all the priests fell on their face, refusing to move, that Solomon stood up and prophesied Song of Songs 1 through 8. I mean, th think about this. The, the most, other than when Jesus hit the planet, the most glory-filled moment, possibly of the entire Old Testament, Song of Songs was prophesied out of. He didn't prophesy, I see the glory of the Lord, I see the train of his robe filling the temple. All that stuff's great. He prophesied, let him kiss me. That's how, we're about to read it. That's how song, the first thing he says, let him kiss me. <clears throat> uh, this same rabbi made this statement. It, it was recorded uh, for us to have later. But he made this statement. For all eternity in its entirety is not worth, as worthy as the day on which Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all writings are holy, but Song of Songs is the holy of holies. In fact, the name itself is a Hebrew idiom that denotes superior excellence. So as you went into the temple, the holy temple, there was a point where you went beyond being in the holy temple and stepped into the holy within the holies, the holy of holies. In Hebrew, that would denote superior excellence. So by giving the title of this book, Song of Songs, what it was saying is, is all of Scripture is divine and holy and glorious, right? We all agree on that? This is divine and glorious within divine and glorious. Think of it like this. Jesus at one point had 72 disciples that he sent out, right? But then he had the 12 that was closest to him. But then he had three within those 12. 
as Jesus went up to the mountain of transfiguration, the greatest encounter that anyone had had on planet earth with God, where he goes to the mountain, Moses shows up, Elijah shows up, and Jesus starts glowing in the dark. Who's there? Not 72 and not 12, three. What he's saying is, is the deeper you go into holy, the deeper you go into mystery, the deeper you go down the narrow way, you're going to find yourself with fewer and fewer people because there's something in depth that you're going to re- be required to give up in order to access. When you get married, you leave your father and mother and join to another. You leave everything you used to be comfortable with, and you are joined with something that is greater. I love being married and living to my wife a lot more than I love living at home, and I love my parents, but this is a lot better. But in order to make that decision, I had to first make the decision to leave the comfortable and step into something brand new that I didn't have any idea what I was getting into, right? And so that's how the kingdom works. And so Song of Songs is that. Song of Songs is that you're not just going into Scripture. You're going into the holy of holies in Scripture. In fact, it's so pointed that it's in the heart of your Bible. Song of Songs is the heartbeat of your Bible. You remove Song of Songs, and you have a really hard time having a heartbeat throughout the rest of Scripture. A lot of people today struggle with how God sees them because we don't teach Song of Songs. So, so I know how God moves. I know how God operates. I know God is good. I know all of that stuff. But if I don't know that he is ravished by just one glance of my eyes, I have a really difficult time believing he's good when I'm going through something that doesn't look good. And so we all have this idea that God, and this sounds like review, but I'm trying to get to, uh, to the heart of this that God just tolerates us as Christians. Because he created us and because he went to the cross, now he's obligated to tolerate us. That's how we view God. It's not an obligation to him. He's, he desires you. Above all, he desires you. You were the treasure in the field that he sold everything to buy the field for. He sold everything to buy the earth to get the treasure, you, out of the earth. I don't know if this is doing anything else in y'all, but it's doing something in me. Let me just read some statistics real quick. Let me just, just for the fun of it. Ready? Uh, 65, this is according to Pew Research. They're super reliable, I'm guessing. I see them on the news all the time, so, (laughs) you know, maybe. Uh, 65% of Americans today identify as Christian, which sounds like, you know, all right, whatever. Until you see, that's down 12% in just the last decade. Let me put that into perspective. If that trend continues, in 55 years, there will be zero Americans that identify as Christian. Two generations. We are two generations away from Christianity being completely extinct in America, the free country that was founded on Yahweh. In China, the most persecuted planet towards Christian, probably on planet Earth, if not one of the most. In, two, in 1980, there were 3 million estimated Christians in China. Do you know how many there were in 2018, 40 years later? So four decades later. Over 100 million. To compare, America, land of the free, home of the brave, in God we trust, down 12% over the decade. In China, if you're a Christian and you're seen with a Bible, you get thrown in jail, possibly killed, up 833% every decade. If that doesn't do anything in y'all, that's fine. But I'm telling you, what we thought the world needed was for us to look more like the world so that we could relate to them. And I think the reason people have left the church is not because we don't look like the world. I think people have left the church because we don't look like Jesus. So people are not coming into the church because they want a show. I can go get a show next weekend at, what's it called, Music Farm. 
That's not why they're coming in the church. And we thought that's why they came in. They came in to find something that we were supposed to be offering, which was Jesus. Which is why we are anchored in and centered around the idea that he is madly in love with us. And if he's madly in love with us, I'm going to give the rest of my days in this church to make sure we fall madly in love with him. In, 20, in 2009, 52% of Americans said they attend church once a month. That means 20% today, excuse me, today that number is 45%, okay? So in 2009, one decade ago, 52% of Americans said they, they attend church once a month. Today, it's 45%. Remember, 65% today identify as Christian. That means 20% of those who identify as Christian Admit they never stepped foot in a church. Eighty percent of baby boomers and the silent generation identify as Christian. Forty-nine percent of millennials identify as Christian. So in a few generations, it dropped by almost half. And like I said earlier, 3 to 5% of Americans tithe. That means 60 to 62% of those who identify as Christians give zero to the kingdom. For families making more than 75000 a year, only 1% of those tithe. Average giving for adults who attend a Protestant church in America is 17 bucks a week. And like I said, about 80% of non-church-going people give to other charitable organizations. Why do I share all this stuff? I believe it's very ironic that we have stopped teaching the song of all songs, and and we're wondering why people are just leaving. I believe the answer for America is understanding who we are. My job is to, and you've heard me say, my job is to equip you for us to go do the work of the ministry outside of this place. I believe if I could equip everybody in this room to go out and save the people around you this week, we wouldn't have to worry about these statistics. We'd throw them in the garbage. Meaningless. Nobody's reaching anybody. In fact, statistics say most people don't even go to church. 20% attend church once a week in America. I don't consider it regular attendance if you go once a month. (coughs) I didn't think I was, that was my old sermon, so just had to, felt good. Um, that's, That's why I'm so thankful for what's going on in this room. Nobody comes in this room with the expectation for them to get blown away by a show. And if you did, I really apologize. Sincerely apologize. But everybody's coming in this room because we believe, myself included, my family, the reason we show up, we do kids, we believe that in this room we've, we've created an environment for him to be freely present at all times. We, what we've done is we've, we've been a church that literally gets out of the way and says, have your way. We don't have a timer. We plant songs, but most of the time don't end up doing them. I tried to get us to do a song earlier that we didn't even plan. That's why we had that moment of what are, what's going on. That was all me. We don't, we don't look like Jesus because we don't know who we are and how much he actually wants us. In Genesis, God created Eve to be Adam's helper and said, it's not good for man to be alone. Jesus came as the last Adam and gave birth to his Eve, us, from his side on the cross. So you can also apply that statement to the last Adam that was applied to the first Adam. It is not good for the Son of Man to be alone. He wanted a helper and a partner. Eugene Peterson has become one of my favorite dudes in the last few hundred years. Uh, He did the the Message Bible. Okay, so you know the, the Message version of the Bible. Uh... So, super awesome guy, spirit-filled. He wrote so many books um, that have helped a lot of pastors. But 
Listen to this quote from him. He wrote this in his book, Run With the Horses. He said this, love, question mark, yes, God loves us, but his love is passionate and seeks faithful, committed love in return. God does not want tame pets to fondle and feed. He wants mature, free people who will respond to him in authentic individuality. For that to happen, there must be honesty and truth. The self must be toppled from its pedestal. There must be pure hearts and clear intelligence, confession of sin, and commitment in faith. I love that. We all know God loves us, but he does not want robots. He wants passionate, fully grown partners that he can do life with just like we do life with him. We, we see this as one way. God rigged the whole system. Does God need us? No. But he, he, he rigged the entire system to need us. So I, I just got to... Does, does God need us in the grand scheme of things? No. But he created an order in which he needs us. God was not okay living apart from you. That's why Jesus came and was beat to death for things he didn't do. The only man who lived a perfect life died for all the other people who didn't live perfect lives. Why would you do that unless you were so passionately in love with the people who could not live perfect lives that you were willing to sacrifice your body in order that you might have a chance to get those people back? There was no guarantee that we would say yes to him on the other side of the cross. There was no guarantee. He was willing to go to the cross with a 10, 20, 30% chance they might say yes. That even if it was a 1%, if there was a 1%, you know the movie um, with uh, Harry and Lloyd, Dumb and Dumber, right? Right? So, you know, at the end of the movie, he's like, so, you know, what, what chances do we have? You know what I mean? And I forget, what, is she, what does she say? One in a hundred. Yeah. There we go. Thanks, Tim. That's right. That's right. That's right. He's like, one in a hundred. He's like, you know, more like one in a million. And he says, so there's a chance. Right? Right? Okay, so if there was a one in a million chance that we would say yes in response to him, he was willing to go through all of it. Don't let that become some kind of talking point in the church. Don't let that become just another message we preach. Think about that. The God of the universe that had full authority and power to make us obey and shoot lightning bolts down and make sure that we're doing everything to a T. Instead said, I don't want robots. I don't want people who obey me because they're afraid of being struck dead. I want a bride. I want a partner. I want an equal. Hello, that's going to get me in a lot of trouble if you're watching. But that's we're created in the image and we're joined in life union with Jesus. What do we think that means? It means he is seated on a throne and in love rips us up from where we are and sits us right beside him in the heavenly places. Right now, I heard Dr. Brian Simmons, who translated this, I heard a talk that he gave, and he made this comment, and I thought it was awesome. As they were sitting down after they prayed, he didn't say, y'all be seated. He said, be seated in the heavenly realm. I, I was like, man, why don't I come up with cool stuff like that? All, every time I hear I'm like, man, yeah. be seated in the heavenly. Right now, you're not just sitting in a chair. You're not just doing your life. As you are going about your life, the reality of who you are, if you're saved, is you are seated with Christ on his throne. Why would he do that? Unless you meant so much to him that he was willing to give the keys of a Lamborghini to a five-year-old and say, maybe they'll make it down the road. Some of y'all didn't get that. That's okay. <clears throat> As it was coming out of my mouth, I started questioning it. <laughs> in, <laughs> in Numbers, I promise we're going to hit four verses today. In Numbers 12.8, 
God does not speak to Moses face to face. All your Bibles say that, and it's a horrible translation. The, the, the Hebrew word is a word pronounced peh, P-E-H in English. Zero percent that word is translated face. So that's, that is a, a horrible translation, and all of our Bibles have it. It's completely incorrect. God did not speak to Moses face to face. He spoke to Moses mouth to mouth. That's what, the word pay has one definition, mouth. So literally in the Hebrew it says that God spoke to him pay pay. It means mouth to mouth, literally lip to lip. Moses goes into a clout and doesn't just start speaking to God from a distant face-to-face setting. God comes to Moses' level, puts his lips on Moses' lips, and they begin to commune back and forth. When God creates Adam, i got to get this chair out of the way. It's driving me crazy. When God creates Adam, how do you think right now, if I do, did anybody feel that? In order for me to breathe my life into you, I got to get about this close right here. So God didn't raise up Adam and then just say, and all of a sudden, you know what he did? He raised up Adam and then kissed him. And the kiss gave life to all of his being. A kiss is a universal language. If I go to Africa, I can't speak one African word. Cannot. But if I walk up to somebody and kiss them, they know exactly what it means. This is my favorite part of this whole message. Y'all ready? Here we go. Here we go. John 19, don't turn there. John 19.30, Jesus says, as he's dying on the cross drinks the wine, or the the sour wine, (coughs) hyssop, and then he says what? What's the last words, anybody, that Jesus said? What's the last words he said? It's finished. Tetelestai. How many of you have heard that in the Greek, tetelestai, that word? How many of you know Jesus didn't speak Greek? Uh, this isn't like a trick. Jesus did not speak Greek. Tetelestai is a translation of what Jesus said. So when you start translating, this is why I read in the Passion Translation almost every week. I don't want a word-for-word translation because there are not English words for Hebrew words. They're just, they just don't exist. You have to have a description-for-description or meaning-for-meaning translation if you're going to understand the Bible, and that's what the Passion Translation is. NLT is really really close to that too. But once you start crossing language barriers, you start losing meanings. So we see love, for example. We see love. I can tell Ellen, man, I love you. And then go home and tell my wife, I love you. And then go tell my daughter, I love you. All those are different loves. In the English, it's just love. In the Greek, there are specific words for all those types of love. So, so there's a barrier that you have to cross. It's awesome. No, none of us in this room can speak Greek, at least I don't think. So we need translations, but we also need divine teaching and Holy Spirit for us to understand what the scriptures are saying. So you ready for this? When Jesus dies, in the Greek, it's translated to telestai, which if you take that from the Greek into the English, it means it is finished. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said a Hebrew word, kalai. Out of the mouth of Jesus was the word kalai. Does anybody in this uh, in the room know what a homonym is? Man, eighth grade, right? Just kidding. I had to look it up this week. So, um, a homonym is a word that is spelled one way but has multiple different meanings. Okay. So the word L-E-A-D means lead, like I'm a leader. It also means lead, like what's in your pencil. Same word. Well, in the Hebrew, homonyms have multiple different meanings, but the Hebrew language is a language where those meanings are all tied together. Uh, the Hebrew language is a, is a beautiful language, and it's anchored in God. 
Hebrews were God, Israelites were God's people. So the whole language is anchored in God. Okay? So if you take the poetic kind of flow of the Hebrew language and also go under the root system and see the whole language is a God language, there is some awesome stuff in your Hebrew Bible that we just miss. So Jesus says a word, kalai, which is one of those words, and it has two meanings. The first meaning is it is complete or it is finished. Check. Do you know what the second meaning is? Bride. I don't know if it hit y'all like it hit me this week when I started studying this. Jesus didn't just say, it is finished. He said, I did it, bride. I, man, I feel that all over me. If you don't, that's fine. He, he didn't just, I, I did it. I finished it. He said, I finished it. Now I want my bride. The last thing that he said as he's dying on the cross is an announcement that your identity is no longer sinner. Now, because it is finished, you are bride. Do you understand this? We walk around like he finished something that we don't know what he finished. He didn't finish sin just to finish sin because it was fun. He finished sin because he wanted his bride. Without the bride, none of it mattered to him. It was all anchored on the bride, which is why we get the language all throughout the New Testament. Suddenly, the people of God are called the bride of Christ. All throughout the New Testament. Why do we get that language? Because there was an announcement by Jesus Christ as he dies, you're now bride. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Into your hands I give my spirit. It is finished, my bride. It is said that the martyrs, before they would get burned at the stake, would speak Song of Songs. Ten to one in our history, what we know, ten to one, the martyrs, right before they would die, would speak Song of Songs. One medieval Jewish commentator said Song of Songs is like a book for which the key has been lost. In other words, there's such riches within this book, if you could ever find the key to unlock them, it would change your world. So let's go to Song of Songs 1 real quick. Y'all good? Y'all with me? Good. I'm only going to read the first four verses. We might go further, but I think that's probably all the time we're going to have. So this is a book between a Shulamite woman, which is us, and her beloved Solomon, which is Jesus. Shulamite, the word Shulamite and the word Solomon are taken from the same word. One is feminine and one is male. We are one with him. The lang- think about this. The language is so prophetically specific that the woman in the story and the man in the story both have the same name. One is feminine and one is male, but they come from one. All right. So Song of Songs 1, let's start. Um, the most amazing song of all by King Solomon, verse 2. Let him smother me with kisses. His spirit kiss divine. So kind are your caresses, I drink them in like the sweetest wine. If we don't write a song with those phrases in it, we have missed it. Write that down, Ellington. Um, (laughs) Your presence releases a fragrance so pleasing over and over poured out, for your lovely name is flowing oil. No wonder the brides-to-be adore you. 
draw me into your heart, we will run away together into the king's cloud-filled chamber. It's not, let's go to coffee, let's go on a few dates, see how this works out. It's, let him smother me with kisses. So let me just get started just right there, right? I want to focus on the, the first uh, couple of things right here. Really, this is where I want to land. The first words that the Shulamite, which represents us, first words spoken, let him. Let him. His kiss releases life in you. When his kiss hits your lips, it will always evict anything not of him that you're still being kissed by. When you're kissed by the divine spirit kiss, immediately you'll start losing taste for everything else you've been kissing in your life. So a lot of times, we won't let him kiss us like he wants to kiss us. And how many of y'all know I'm not talking about actually, nobody kiss each other in the room, okay? You're, you're, how, we won't let him kiss us because we know what will happen if he ever gets his lips to ours. We hold on to things that we find so much comfort and safety in, and we know that when he gets that close, he's going to also have to take all that stuff with him, which is why we have such a hard time letting him. I mean, most, most of the church as a whole in 2020 will not let him kiss us because we know what it means. We can't tiptoe around abortion when he starts kissing us. We can't tiptoe around gay marriage when he starts kissing us. We can't tiptoe around the fact that nobody in the church believes and trusts enough to even give money. I heard this phrase, and I forget who said this. It was somebody way smarter than me. But he said this, if you have a problem that a check can solve, you don't actually have a problem. Somebody way wiser than me said that. So that's not for me. So if y'all get mad at me, this, I didn't say that. Right? If he owns the cattle of a thousand hills, money's nothing to him. And if he hasn't released, and I'm speaking this over my life currently. This is, I'm speaking this directly to me. I'm going to go back and watch. If he hasn't released everything he promised he would release over you yet, does not mean he's mean. It's because there's somewhere in your life where you haven't let him give you the full smack. I don't know what that is, but drive me crazy. Okay? T Jesus said this. He said, to live, you must die. We all know that, right? At least I hope. If you've been in church at any point, you should have heard this. To live, those who lose their life will find it, and those who find their life will lose it, right? What is he saying? He's saying, in order to live like I want you to live, the first thing I'm going to require is you dying to the inferior way of living that you've been living in. You can't live in both realities. You've got to die to one. And unfortunately, a lot of times we choose to die to the spirit so that we can live in the natural because it's very difficult to die to the natural and live in the spirit because it requires what we've been talking about for the past two years, trust. We don't trust God, therefore it's a lot more plausible for us to die to all the things of God and just live like we've been living than to die to all the things that we've been living with and Trust in God and walk into those things. It's a, it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to do ministry right here. It gets real quiet when I start talking about that. It's, so much, it's a lot easier to do ministry over here. Very difficult to lose ministry over here because nobody wants this. But at some point, somebody is going to have to be the remnant that says, I'm going to be planted right here until the seed begins to sprout and a remnant rises up in the globe that says, we're done with this shallow God-in-a-distance Christianity. Instead, I want God lip-to-lip. -lip. If I don't have him lip-to-lip, -lip, I don't want to be a part of it. 
I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about the church. If the church is not pushing people to lip to lip, then we should close the doors because that's the purpose of everything. Why did God create everything in you? It wasn't to have you at a distance. It was to have you right here so that he could kiss you 24-7. So if we're not pushing people to kiss after kiss after kiss and instead pushing them to programs and events and better programs and better events and bounce houses and whatever else we do that we think we, those things draw people. One thing makes people free indeed. And it's the thing that not as many people want. And the reason I talk about that so much is not just to talk about it. The reason I talk about it so much is there is a lot of stuff still rooted in us that we haven't let him take care of from this side of the aisle. There's a lot of people in this room that struggle with some of the things that he speaks from here or on a Tuesday night or in community or whatever because there's something that's still rooted in us from this side of things. And if we could ever allow him to uproot all the bad seeds that were planted in us, we'd actually begin to step into the garden. I have a hard time believing that there is fruit. The Israelites go and they spy out Israel, the promised land, Canaan. They come back. They have a cluster of grapes that's so big that multiple people have to carry them. Okay? What that's a picture of is a, is a picture of the garden, ultimately. That there is fruit that you have access to in the garden that would blow your mind if you could see them right now. And you can take that as literal, as spiritual as you want. There's a lot of us who have a hard time when we see other people tasting and enjoying fruit that we currently do not see because we haven't made the transition. So instead of seeing that and saying, man, I want that and pursuing it, we start to disconnect because we don't want to make the decision that we're going to have to die in order to eat what other people are eating. Now, we, I, I didn't get to this place just by stumbling through life. I got to this place by willing to, being willing to say, if it costs us everything, I'm going to make sure that people in the city of Columbia have a place that if they want his lips, they can find them. And so we, let, we risk, every, and I'll say that about me, I just, this is reality, we risk everything that we had, potentially. If this didn't work out, we were homeless. That's how much this meant. So it wasn't just we just stumbled upon some of this stuff. It's every morning setting an alarm, waking up at 5 a.m., getting in the floor and letting him kiss you with his spirit kiss divine day in and day out and day in and day out. And then people are like, man, I just, I don't know about that. I don't know about God speaking today. I just, I just don't know about that. You know what I was thinking this week? And I'll say this, in, I, all of this in, I've never met somebody who has a thriving relationship with Jesus that doesn't believe in healing. Shouldn't have said. Let me just pull the little seat back up. Some of y'all probably get driven to insanity. I, every week I probably move this chair a thousand times. <laughs> right? Every week, every week. I can't decide if I want to sit or stand or want it out of the way or in the way. I've, I've, never, I've never met a person with a legitimate, thriving relationship with Jesus that does not believe in healing. I've met a lot of people who have no relationship with Jesus that don't believe in healing. And I'm not, I'm not saying which one's right or wrong. I'm just saying. I, you, you don't get, that's, people ask me all the time, why don't you teach on healing when we see people healed left and right? Why, why, don't you, why don't you teach on healing? I don't necessarily need to teach on healing. If you'll let him start kissing you, you'll start healing people. You'll be healed. <clears throat> okay. So remember the new wine and old wine cannot exist together. This is all review, but let me just hit this real quick. Remember, we're talking about the words let him, okay? New wine and old wine can't exist together. So if he is introducing new wine, his kiss of life, it also is an announcement that old wine has been or is being released from you. 
if he shows up with a new kiss, with a new revelation, with a new call, with a new level of trust, whatever, if he shows up with a new kiss, you know 100% it's an announcement that either you've just walked through emptying or you're about to walk through emptying. He does not desire to take good things from you. He does desire to give you the most excellent thing that will cause you to redefine good. Let me say this one more time. He does not desire to take good things from you, but he does desire to give you something so extravagant that it will redefine what you call good. You know what I used to call good? A ton of likes on Instagram. And this isn't a joke. A ton of people searching me, people wanting pictures after a worship set. I go home, man, we did ministry today. You know what I define as good now? My daughter in our house saying, a, uh, what's, the, what's the verse, Lord? I, don't, I can't even say it now. A, a, a soft word? Is it soft? A soft, my daughter saying this. She, the, she says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15.1. My wife taught them that in kids, so y'all think I'm doing the teaching. Um, <laughs> okay? I used to define success as how many people followed me and wanted what I had to offer. You know what I define as success now? My daughter knowing what this word says. And hearing stories like Jane, where she says, you know what, one day I just realized I'm totally healed. You know what I mean? I didn't lay hands on you. Nobody else, we didn't even know you were sick. To be honest with you, which is probably not good on me. But, but she's in the presence on a consistent basis. And when he starts kissing you, the things that are not allowed in his presence start leaving, including sickness. I believe the healing that needs to take place over America with things like cancer and alter and things that we cannot cure. You know why we can't cure them? Because it's going to take a kiss to cure them. And we've spent the last 200 years driving the one who gives the kiss into outer space. I think if we could bring him back from his proverbial distant heaven and instead say, as for me and my house, we're going to kiss you as long as we live. Cancer will start being eradicated. Believe it or not. That's the reality of Scripture. You can read through Scripture. The Israelites struggled over and over and over with sickness. Not one time did they struggle with sickness when they were in good standing with God. A hundred percent of the time when they distanced themselves from God, they started being introduced to sicknesses that they didn't have when they were close to God. God didn't bring the sickness, but his kisses that were evicting the sickness became distant. And when they became distant, it allowed space for things you were not designed for to get in. Here, I'm teaching on healing right now. You, you know what I'm saying? That, that's why when I pray for people, because I take, I walk the, it's probably very dangerous. But I, I take the offering, I walk it to the bank, it's right down the street. And the reason I do that is because I pass tons of people I can pray for on the way there and on the way back. And every time I talk to people, homeless people, people who aren't homeless and just working a job and stressed out, all the whole spectrum, college kid, I talk to them. And when I speak to them about things like this week, I, I said this to somebody at the mall yesterday. I, he were, I was inviting them to church, and they were asking what we were in. And I said, Song of Songs. And they said, isn't that, isn't that that love book? I'm like, yeah, sure it is. You ever, you ever read it? No. Anybody ever taught you nope and then I was like well you should probably be a church yeah but but my conversations with people and I know a lot of us too it's not you know be healed and then blow on them and I think that's great I mean, we wouldn't do that all day long that that's not my that's not how I roll I believe I can introduce his kiss into their life and not just heal them with something temporary from something temporary, I believe he wants to heal people eternally, and in healing them eternally, he takes care of all the temporary stuff in the process. 
We've been so, so adamant about going after temporary healing that we've healed people temporarily and they've been lost for eternity. I think it's a lot more effective to go after eternity and receive the temporary as an inheritance than to go after the temporary and lose eternity. C.S. Lewis, I believe, said this, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Why? Why? I'm just going to start sitting around being like, all right, what's the coolest thing? Um, but that's aim at heaven and you'll, just, you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. And you, do you know what I spent years doing in ministry? With a bow and arrow aimed right at the earth. And then wondered why I was burned out and I was seeing zero results. In here, we start aiming at heaven, and then all of a sudden, people who have had diseases since they were four years old start saying, you know what, I just realized I'm not, I don't have this anymore. Why? Because we've aimed at heaven, and he started giving us the nations as our inheritance. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. Sit right here. I'll make your enemies your footstool. Song of Songs. Let him, let him kiss me. There it goes, the chair. He, so why did Jesus become flesh and dwell among us? We know John 19.30, he says, it is finished, my bride. It was for the bride. It was all for you. He desires one thing, you. You could take David's psalm, one thing I desire, this shall I seek for all my life, to dwell in your house and to gaze upon the beauty of your face. And flip it around and hear the words from the mouth of Jesus, there's one thing I desire, and this shall I seek, to dwell in your house forever with you and to gaze upon the beauty of your face for all of eternity. I mean, it is the word of God, right? So why, why did Jesus become flesh? To make a way for him to be able to gaze upon your face and see your beauty for the rest of his life. That's why Jesus came. He did not come primarily to take care of sin. He came to take care of sin so that he could have you primarily. So that's why we know why Jesus came into being. Why did we come into being? St. Irenaeus said this, the glory of God is man fully alive, and the life of man is the vision of God. The glory of what is the glory of God? Man fully alive, and the life of man is the vision of God, or seeing things as God sees them. So I just wrote this, and let me just speak this over your life. You came into being. Can we get some? Hey, Ellington, you can go ahead and like. Play that little tune we got. Just the piano thing. We're going to wrap it up. This is all I got. <clears throat> all right. You, listen to this. You came into being for eternal purpose, not temporary. You came into being because as Adam in the beginning, it was not good to Yahweh for the Son of Man to be alone. You came into being because just as Adam, it wasn't good for him to be alone, it was also not good for the Son of Man to be alone. You came into being not by accident that became a nuisance to a God that has to tolerate you, but on exquisite purpose of a lover who wanted another lover. You came into being so he could share the riches of his glory and majesty with you. He has so much love to give, and you are the design container to receive it. He made your eyes for his wonder, your ears for his song, your nose for his fragrance, your mouth for his kisses, your soul for his soul, your heart for his rhythm, your brain for his wisdom, your hands for his holding, your feet for his garden, and your voice for his enjoyment. The cosmos in all their splendor fall desperately short to the melting of his interior world when you give him just a look. Why did you come into being? So he could enjoy you forever. 
the Christ, the Christian journey, I believe, doesn't start necessarily. This is a way in. Doesn't start when you repeat a prayer. The Christian journey starts when you let him. Remember what we said last week? I think it was last week. What does salvation mean? Salvation, Greek word, sozo, means to be saved from danger, to be made whole, to be kept, preserved, to be healed. That's, all, that's, that's salvation. We don't even have to have a doctrine of healing. If we have a doctrine of salvation, which all of us have, it has to include healing. You can't have sozo without healing. Without that, it's not the word anymore. In fact, we start taking away words from the Bible when we start taking away realities of the kingdom. So for us to say that healing is not for today is, for, is the equivalent for us saying salvation is not for today. Well, Josh, how can you say that? Because they all are in the same word. If you remove sozo from the Bible, you also have to remove salvation. That's the word. But if you keep sozo in the Bible, then you have to leave healing. You have to leave grace that keeps you no matter what you do. You can't lose your salvation. Why? Because the very word sozo means to be kept and preserved. Do, do you understand this? And we haven't been taught this because honestly, and I say that because a lot of teachers haven't sat in the wonder of his face long enough for him to teach us the truth of the scripture. So we've taught people, repeat this prayer, repeat this prayer, repeat this prayer, which is great if it results in life change, but if it results in you going back and being the same person, no exchange happened. Salvation is an exchange. You give him your rags, he gives you your, his riches. You give him your dirty robe, he gives you his perfected clean robe. But there's an exchange that has to happen. And if we haven't made the exchange, then all of this is completely meaningless. Who cares about you being the bride if you never say yes to marrying him? God did not bring you into some just halfway apathetic relationship. He brought you into covenant, marriage. When me and Jordan got married, it wasn't just a, well, if this doesn't work out, you know, whatever. As much as people want to say that today, that's not what it is. I don't even like saying, till death do you part, because I feel like that's a, lot, that's a little off if you're a Christian. But even that, you make a commitment. Everybody in America makes a commitment till death do us part. And then we think that we can just slide out of it whenever it gets difficult. And then we start asking God why Jesus made statements that it's adultery for you to go marry somebody else if you divorce for any reason other than somebody cheating on you. Why, why did Jesus make statements like that? Because you're lying. Because you made a commitment on the altar that said, I'm going to give my life to this person as long as I live, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how low the days are or high the days are, no matter how many times they get on my nerves, no matter how many times they mismanage things. Uh, you make a commitment. I know that's not popular. The divorce rate, last time I checked, is actually higher in the church than it is in the world. Why? I believe it's because we don't know what commitment is. We don't know what covenant is. He didn't, he didn't die for some apathetic, if this gets hard, we'll just jump out of this thing. It, it, he lost more stepping into covenant with you than you lose stepping into covenant with him. You, I mean, the only thing you lose is your life. And then you gain his. By him stepping into covenant with you, he gets all the mess that comes with you, and he's okay with it. You're, you understand this? People have such a hard time with the idea of what it means to be in covenant with God because we don't trust him. We don't think that he's good. And really, it's because we as teachers, I'll take some of the fault. We as teachers have taught that he's way out there and doesn't care for us. 
In this house, let me give you the truth. He's actually closer than your skin on your body, and he cares immensely for you. He wasn't good. It wasn't good enough for him for him to just be close. He wanted it so bad. He wanted you so bad that he actually sent his spirit to be inside of you. It wasn't good enough for him to just be lip to lip. He wanted to be in you. Why? Unless when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb, he put something in your DNA that when you begin to awaken to the fragrance of his nearness, something on the inside of you says, I'll trade it all for a moment of this. Because for him, he traded it all for a moment of you. In the garden, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. As much as it goes against what we've been taught, he was not asking the Lord for another way. He was saying, I'm being crushed to the point of death. Don't let me die in this garden because I've got a bride to go get. That's when he says, let this cup pass from me. He's sweating blood. The Bible says it feels as if he's being crushed to the point of death. And then he says, Father, let this pass from me. I will not die short of my bride. I've got a cross to go to. And there's a lot of us who are in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's asking for our lives, and we're being pressed to the point of death on purpose because he wants you to die to who you are because he expects you to receive an inheritance of a more exquisite life, his very own life, that will leave you free indeed. That's what he desires. So if you're in the garden and you're being pressed to the point of crushing and you feel like you're losing everything that you found safety in and you're losing relationships and you're losing things and you're losing your job and you're losing things that you thought you would never lose, in that moment you've got a choice. I quit or let this cup pass for me because I got a groom waiting for me. Thanks for listening to this week's message. For more information, visit dreamcolumbia.com.